Greetings. You're listening to the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Chris Smith. Whether you're a grizzled old salt, pining for the days of wire rope halyards, or a greenhorn, wondering what the hell a dolphin striker is, this is the podcast that seeks to fill the need for everybody's third most favorite pastime. That is, talking about sailing. Greetings, people of the internet. Welcome to the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Chris Smith, and I will be your chaperone for the next hour. Please keep your hands to yourself and be on your best behavior. Today is November 1st, 2019, if you're listening in real time. And today I have for you a conversation with John Herlig. John fixed up his 50-year-old Ross and 30, Ave Del Mar, and took her sailing. Down the ICW, across to the Bahamas, and then off the beaten path a bit, visiting Haiti and Jamaica before uh, returning to Florida. We speak about his thoughts on John Vigor's black box theory of uh, seamanship, uh, nautical superstitions, and the allure of travel under sail. Uh, John had a podcast on boat radio when that was uh, still releasing, uh, and he also released a few podcasts under his own flag, and he has some exciting new things coming up in the sailing podcast realm, so listen up for that. He can be found online at avedelmar.com, and more recently, having uh, re- returned home to work, he stored Ave on the hard in Green Turtle Key in the Bahamas, where she was uh, standing when Hurricane Dorian made landfall. So that's where we start off, and I'll let John take it from there. Stand by. Cool. So, and I'll, I do all the intros and stuff kind of after the fact. So we can, we'll just kind of jump in here. Um, and I do, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, and I guess it, it probably makes sense to start with, with kind of recent events here. So, you know, Ave Del Mar, I know is on green turtle in the Bahamas. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, for those listening, you know, as we're recording this, the Abacos are still reeling from hurricane Dorian. Um, and I know you have some friends down there. So, I mean, what have you heard from them and, uh, and what is the status of the boat? Well, I tell you what, we could, uh, slip down this slope and be a Dorian podcast before you know it. Here's what, and, and thank you. I think it's the right place to start and it's kind of hard to answer. Um, first it's hard to answer because I do still have a boat and I have so many friends who are near and dear to me who were down there who no longer have boats. Um, so my boat being less than a hundred percent hardly seems like a, a tough cross to bear at this point because I still have one. My boat is on green turtle key um, which was in the eye wall for pretty much the entirety of Dorian. She was hauled out in a boatyard called Abaco Yacht Services, AYS, as we like to call it, um, on jack stands, strapped down hurricane straps, and, and stripped down as much as she could be. I've never done a count in that yard. I'd say there's a 100-some-odd boats. If you count the ones they hauled out just for the storm, maybe a couple hundred. Um, and the surge did not hit that side really badly. We almost all got impacted by the wind. I think that the gusts were something in the 220 mile an hour range. Jesus. Um, yeah. yeah, most of the boats in that yard are no longer upright in their jack stands. That Most of them are as my Ave Del Mar is. Most of them are down on their side on a hull. Um, and 
oddly the the few that are still upright in the jack stands almost all of them are uh dismasted huh um yeah so it seems that all the falling boats busted up the rigs of all the boats next to them that didn't bother to get the domino message before it came. Um, and we've got one catamaran that's literally upside down. Um, and the, uh, the owner of that on a, a discussion group about the, the yacht yard made comment. She said, well, my boat's upside down, but that makes me feel good about water getting in. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, silver lining. We are there and we're in an incredible holding pattern. Uh, I think a lot of people want me to be a lot more wound up than I am about getting more information. I'm fortunate enough that my friends who were there who rode out the storm in a storm bunker right on the island, they survived unscathed. Uh, this is two different gentlemen, two different boats. Um, they both lost their boats, but they were both kind enough to go down and check on mine. So Avi Damar is on her starboard side. She has a breach in the hull. I've got sections of 50-year-old Iroko cap rail that have been torn off that I'm sure I'll never find and, and things like that. But assuming that the gash in the hull is fixable, whenever the uh, people who run the boatyard get their lives in order enough that coming back to work is something they can think about, then they'll get in and start picking boats up. And at that point, we can start making plans to get down and, and get a better assessment of what's going on inside the boat. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I'm certainly glad to hear, uh, glad to hear that. It sounds like as, as, as far as things go, that's good news. And, uh, yeah, it could be a lot worse. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And it's, it's just crazy. I mean, you know, we're, we're on the Chesapeake Bay, so we keep a pretty close eye on, on the hurricanes as they come up and yeah, and it just parked, it parked right on top of the Abacos. I mean, it was, yeah. Oof. There's, there have been a few that have done strange things and that little stall maneuver that Dorian pulled, uh, was not really the nicest maneuver a hurricane has ever done. I think I was in West Palm a few years ago when Matthew came through. And yep. if I'm remembering, I know it was Matthew. Um, I don't know if the track I'm about to describe was Matthew, but if it was Matthew, this thing came in like under the Bahamas, under under everything, and just made the strangest like 100-degree turn to starboard to come up the coast. There was no gentle turn or anything it's like the road came to a t-head and he had to go left or right so he went right um what these storms do is just strange and unpredictable but the the winds down there what happened to marsh harbor in hopetown is just ungodly it's just it, it's hard to imagine and i was i was there literally a week before the storm hit i mean that's where we flew out of i was looking at air recon photos of bars where i'd met people who would come down to visit the boat and You'd look at the recon photos and have to figure out which pile of rubble was the bar where you'd met people. They're just they're flattened. So Green Turtle, although they're suffering and they're rebuilding, uh, they had no loss of life so far as I know. And, and I think they're already hard at work trying to to rebound and, and get back for the future. Good, good. Um, so and, and I guess uh, you're no stranger to boat work, uh, having already already <laughs> done, uh, done a fair amount. So maybe we can kind of back up and talk about uh, your, your initial you initially finding Alve Del Mar and what, what kind of work you did, did to her to get, uh, get ready to go sailing. Um, I found Ave Del Mar in a boatyard in Reedville, Virginia. So that's off the Chesapeake Bay for anyone who doesn't know in maybe March or early April of 2013, I was 
eager to sail, had never sailed. That's uh, maybe a mild exaggeration. I'd spent a week or so on a friend's boat motoring down the ICW in Florida, but for all practical purposes, I had not sailed. But I was eager and, and thought I would, I would flourish in life on the water and thought it was something I could do. Uh, my kids were done with college and I was done with work and that's what I wanted to do. So someone had offered to give me a boat for free. And I'd be surprised if you're not already laughing when I say that, because we all know what free boats look like. <laughs> but uh, I threw my then 83 or so year old father in the car and trekked down to look at this free boat and get an idea of, of what it was. I had done all my research on it. I was so excited. It was I'll probably screw this up, a, a 1980s era Komar Comet. Okay. 30. So it's a 30-foot deep keel but lightweight fast boat, which probably would have been miserable trying to do anything more than flying around the bay on the weekends. Uh, but it was free, and I was excited, and I went down there to look at it and pulled into the yard and threw a ladder up over and climbed up into the cockpit, and there was no companionway because it had blown open and I stepped down into the water into about two feet of, uh, down. <laughs> See, <laughs> yep. Freud got me. I stepped down into the salon into about two feet of water and uh, the boat was just ruined. Yeah. So I dejectedly drove around the boatyard doing what boat loving people do in boatyards, you know, wandered up and down the aisles looking at anything that had a for sale sign on it. And I saw Ave, as I like to call her, and kind of took a look because she had a big full keel and looked kind of heavy and looked kind of rugged, but she also looked kind of sad and I wasn't really sure. And I decided she wasn't for me and got in the car and drove away, but she wouldn't get out of the rear view mirror. That's the absolute truth. And from the end of the, of the aisle on the boat yard, I backed all the way up, got out of the car and called and long story short, talked to the owners, uh, got to climb up on the boat and look around and from the inside fell in love with the boat, made arrangements to buy her. And, uh, by the end of that summer had finished that deal, bought the boat, spent a couple weeks working on her, intending to sail her up to Annapolis. I was working in Washington DC at the time. And, uh, it had been my goal to sail her to Annapolis to her new slip. Um, but every time I took her out in the water, she'd do great for about a half an hour and then the engine would die. Um, and, and that's a rough way when you got two days to get where you're going in the Chesapeake and the winds can't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I ended up, uh, pulling the mast and putting her on a truck and trucking her up, took her to Annapolis, lived aboard with the mast laying in cradles from tip to tip, like a diving board hanging off the back <laughs> and, uh, just spent all my time working on the boat when I wasn't at work. And when I was at work, I was working to make money so I could take the money and spend it to work on the boat. So the engine worked but needed a lot of attention. The electronics were just all as good as dead, um, right down to wiring systems, fuses, lights, everything. It was just a disaster. So, um, But I rewired her and reworked her and fixed everything and did all those exciting things that you do in the beginning and went to shop for containers to put food in and plates to eat off of and all those things that are so exciting. And it took me <laughs> A year and a half or so. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I'm a bit of a homebody, like having the right stuff to eat off of and to put my food in. And the food lockers really not only mattered to me back then when the boat was new, but it still matters to me. Um, I've long, long felt that 
all of us who go on boats, especially those of us who go to live on boats, have an odd list of of our absolute must-haves. And none of our lists make sense to anybody else. You know, they, my list isn't your list. I know people who can't do it without air conditioning. I know people who can't do it without TV, you know, this, that, the other thing, whatever it may be. So, so making my space comfortable and, and making it feel legitimate to me uh, was important to me. So all those things were exciting, still are, but we got the boat fixed up. Uh, so that was at 13, 14. I'd have to look back at my logs, but somewhere I think late in the summer of 2014, I finally untied the dock lines and for the first time ever went out and actually unfurled a sail and sailed around the uh, South River just outside of Annapolis. And that's when we kind of rounded the corner. I re-rigged the whole boat myself, too. I skipped that little part of it, taught myself that. So re-rigged her from top to bottom and rewired everything in the mast. What um? So what was involved in that? Was that uh? Did you put uh, stainless? Was that like swedge fittings or uh? Would you doing with the uh, was it the what are the mechanical fittings called? Stay lock. Stay lock. Stay- yes. That was all stay lock. So here's another really odd thing. When I was on my fr- my friends Chip and Tammy, uh, who sailed a boat named Caramia, which was an island packet 380. Um, I was aboard their boat with them for a week or so going down the ICW in Florida. And they had had some rigging changed by a professional rigger down in Florida. Well, halfway through our trip, because if you've done the ICW any at all, you know, sailing is a really, really minor part of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so for most of it, you know, we're motoring along, as I like to say, driving through South Central Florida. We realized that that the backstay was I don't remember what it was wrapped around, but it was wrapped around like literally cross lines with something that was that was coming down the backside there. I don't remember what it was. Uh-huh. I, I, they didn't have running backstays. I was in my absolute, you know, the novice stage of this. But I just remember looking up and then pointing at it going, that's not supposed to be like that. So we got to a stop a ways down and they contacted the rigger who sent someone out on contract for him to come fix it. I, I didn't know how the rigging worked. I had no idea what a stay lock versus a Norse fitting versus swage or anything was. But I was just curious as hell. And that guy sat there with his toolbox and took the rigging apart and, you know, took the little inner cone off the end of the cable, cut things, changed it. And I saw him cut new pieces and splay the end and put it up around the car. I just watched him. I, I didn't think I was doing homework until I bought my boat and started. One of the reasons I hadn't sailed her is I just couldn't get myself confident in the rig uh, in addition to that engine dying every half hour. Um, and so I decided to re-rig it. And when I got that stuff and started taking it apart, I was like, oh, this looks like what that guy was doing. And so I went to Fawcett Marine, which if you're ever in Annapolis is sailboat owner's heaven. And uh, kind of walked in there with some stuff, and I said, this is what I got. What do I need to do to figure out how to do this? And I bought a couple of Staylock fittings and literally took home like a 10-foot section of cable and just sat there and kept putting the fitting on the end. Then I'd cut it off and do it again and cut it off and do it again until I felt like I knew how to do it. Nice, nice. Sort yeah. of channeling that guy from Florida who I didn't know was teaching me, but is just doing what I saw him do, and it worked quite well. So. At least so far it has. None of the rigs have uh, gone flying through the air. Cool. Well, that's 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 a, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's my mark for success. That's right. 
So, uh, and you, you kind of mentioned this briefly, but, uh, you know, I too, uh, am a survivor of working full time while refitting a boat, although we weren't living aboard during that process. Right. Um, but, uh, but what was it like when you, when you finally got Ave out, uh, out for a sale? I tell you, it was oddly calm. Um, don't forget, I didn't really know how to sail, <laughs> which I think is an important factor in this. And I'll hang one disclaimer on that. I was always keenly aware of how much I knew and what I could and couldn't do within the sphere of going a little beyond my abilities so I could learn more, but not going out and being an idiot. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to sound cavalier about going out, you know, just punch drunk and horse blind yeah, and, yeah. and getting, getting into trouble. I'm not a fan of that. And I've sailed around people who I think are doing it and it's not fun. Um, but what I did was a simple tack back and forth down the South river. I didn't put up the main. I just had that Genoa out and I get to once I got out there and unfurled it and it just filled up. I've got these big New Zealand made tan bark sails. Cool. Yeah. And, uh, I just gave that thing a yank and it just kind of filled up like a parachute and I tied it off and I thought, well, this looks like it's going okay so far. And I reached in through the companionway cause my, my kill switch, my kill cable is uh, inside. And I reached in through the companionway and pulled that kill switch and the engine went silent. And I just thought to myself, all right, I don't care how much goes wrong in the future. This is is what it's about the boats moving through the water i can actually hear water rippling past the hull the boats moving i'm going places and the engines off and it was peaceful and it was just absolute my neighbors have you ever lived in a marina i have unfortunately my my neighbors were a rowdy lot of <laughs> vagabonds who fed me endless crap for the fact that my boat was always in the slip while I was running, running around talking the big talk about how I was going to go out and do things. And I mean, they razzed me on a daily basis. <laughs> so, uh, silencing the critics, if you will, finally was a really gratifying thing. Cause I kept telling them, I'm like, don't worry, I'll get out there. I'm going to sail. But first I got to get the boat right. Yeah. And I felt, I felt quite an obligation to the boat because of her storied past, because of my relationship with her former owner and all that, I felt a real responsibility to not do it half-assed. So it was just really easy and, and smooth and gratifying. Although I think it might have scraped my neighbor's boat with my bowsprit trying to back out of the slip because I didn't understand prop walk. Other than that, the sailing was spectacular. That sounds that sounds great. And a little scratched paint here and there. I think we all we all got a little bit of that. Yeah, I offered to fix it. He said it didn't matter. So I think I left him 20 bucks and a bottle of wine in his cockpit and decided not to worry about it. Yeah, there you no. go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I figured if the 20 bucks wasn't enough, maybe by the time he was done with the bottle of wine, he'd forget about it. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. I'm always plotting. <laughs> so um, so you fixed up the boat and you launched her or you got her, got her sailing. Um, and then you've, you've done quite a bit of sailing since then. So maybe uh, you can give us kind of the overview of, of where you've been and, and what you've been up to. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, a decent amount, uh, only a scratch on the surface of what I'm still trying to do. So I left out, gosh, do I have to do years? No, no, just, you just, you just, <laughs> That's good. Yeah, awesome. skim, just yeah, summarize. <laughs> As I told one of my kids the other day when we were talking about a book that we'd read a long time ago and I couldn't remember any of the details, I said, look, I'm the rock. 
The book is the river. It's gone past me now. I was very <laughs> present when it was next to me, and now it's not next to me anymore, and I don't remember. That's the way it goes. I took off from Reedville, Virginia, by myself, um, which was not at all the point. I had been dating someone who had no desire to go sailing off towards sunrises and sunsets. So I said, okay, I'll miss you, and I took off. Um I had nothing to prove by doing this solo. Solo has always just been one more minor detail in how I'm going. It's no different than wind speed and direction. But I took off by myself down the intracoastal waterway. I had no desire at all to go outside. Um, I knew how to sail my boat well enough up and down the South River or out in the Chesapeake Bay some. Uh, it was all still very intimidating to me. And I thought trying to go outside and go outside of the Gulf Stream and sail south by myself in a boat that was 50 years old and hadn't been out in a long time was probably a horrible idea. So I went down the intracoastal waterway um, all the way from Norfolk down to South Florida, um, got a little stuck in West Palm Beach. I made it down that far. I had a couple of things that kind of slowed me down. I had one old, do you have solar panels on your boat? Yep, yep, we've got some. Avi yeah. Del Mar, when I bought her, had one solar panel, which was a maybe 25-year-old, I'm not exaggerating, <laughs> New Zealand-made solar panel. The original solar panel. Oh, there was no original solar panel, <laughs> but uh, certainly uh, the, the original one to the boat um, that was powered. It had a, a thick plug coming off of it that ended in a cigarette lighter adapter plug nice so if i wanted to charge the batteries i would toss this thing outside somewhere and kind of bungee it down then plug it into the cigarette lighter outlet and it would you know reverse current and feed the batteries it worked quite well it was a 55 watt panel um but it crapped out just too many years too much moving and and it's not so much that the cells were no longer producing but the wires had just decayed in the back and there was quite literally nothing left to clamp them to. I kept cutting away the, the cancer of the degradation of yeah, the back yeah. solar panel and trying to recline. I gave up on soldering and started just using alligator clips, but that kind of got to me. And uh, then I put a big gash in my thumb when I did something dumb down in the engine compartment after repacking the uh, stuffing box when I was adjusting the drip flow on it with the engine running and kind of let go of a monkey wrench while she was in gear and got, <laughs> got caught in the coupling and decided to kind of jackhammer my thumb for a couple of minutes. Um, so that got infected. So I ended up in West Palm, hit the brakes for a while, got the thumb under control, ordered a couple of new solar panels, got my life together. And then I said, well, crap, it's June. Now it's hurricane season. So I decided to uh, park in South Florida for the rest of that season, which I did. I'm not a big believer in sayings, but I learned this one once and I live by it daily. Someone once told me there are old sailors and there are bold sailors, but there are no old, bold sailors. <laughs> there you go. So I don't mind being chicken shit. So I hung out in West Palm, waited hurricane season to come and go, which inadvertently brought me Matthew in West Palm Beach, which was kind of fun. Uh, at the end of that season, I took off on my own again, sailed down to Miami, left out a government cut, went in, cleared into the Bahamas in Nassau, and just started working my way down the Exumas in the Bahamas. Um, had no idea. I've, I've always kind of run without the crowd. The Exumas is really good for that, I think. 
um, because there's enough islands and enough holes and enough places to go that if you want to not be with the crowd, it's really easy to do. Um, and if that gets old and you want to come back and find the crowd, that's easy to do too. So I kind of just petered my way down through the Exumas, um, ended up in Georgetown where, uh, they say so many North American sailors trips come to an end. Um, mine didn't, but I spent a glorious, I don't know, four or maybe six weeks there. I ended up befriending unbeknownst to me on the way down. I made friends with a man named Ross Gannon, who if you don't know, builds wooden boats. Oh, yeah. Boat. Gannon and Benjamin? Is that right? Yes. Okay. So yeah. I met oh, wow. Austin and I had absolutely no idea who he was. <laughs> yeah. Him and his wife and his kids uh, in a bar in Staniel Key, which was the, I was so excited when I got to Staniel Key because it had civilization, which meant it had a bar so I could go to cold beer because I don't have refrigeration on my boat. And I thought, this is living. Yeah. I'm in the Bahamas. I'm going to go get a cold beer. Um, met them there, had honestly no godly idea who he was, made friends with the whole family, and we kind of buddy-boated. Not Well, yeah, we did. We worked our way down the Exumas, ended up in Georgetown. They had a house rented for a month or so, and we kind of hung out and killed time. I was having the time of my life, meeting a lot of people and hanging out there and trying to sell things I didn't want anymore and buy things I did want for the boat. And Georgetown's a good spot for that. Cool, yeah. Um, in Georgetown, we kind of parted ways because they were going to go to Cuba, and I would love to go to Cuba, but the complexities of Cuba were a little more than I was ready to handle right then. Um, and I met an older gentleman from Uruguay named Aldo, Aldo Rosso, as he likes to say, I am from Uruguay, but my name is Italian. <laughs> That's my buddy Aldo. I met him in Georgetown and he said, where are you going? I said, I want to sail to Haiti. And he said, why Haiti? And I said, because nobody else goes there and I think it looks spectacular. And he said, all right, I will come with you. So Aldo in his boat, which was a Contest 30, uh, he, he tagged along and we left Georgetown together, went on through the rest of the Bahamas, did Long Island, Crooked, Atkins, and uh, Great Iguana, and worked our way down, sailed south through the Windward Passage to Haiti. Um, we made three major stops in Haiti, which was among the most spectacular experiences I've had on the boat. Um, so many people want to go, this is going to sound judgy. This is not in any way supposed to sound judgy. No, let, let her rip. The one thing that we're all supposed to do, in my opinion, is go out there and do the things that we want to do. There are a heck of a lot of people who enjoy being in their marina up in North America with other boats that they know and love and all sailing south, maybe together, maybe separately, and all ending up in Georgetown or holes similar to Georgetown with the same damn people drinking the same damn Corona beer on the beach and eating hamburgers. That's not my gig. Have I done it? Sure. Well, I don't eat meat, but, you know, I've been to Volleyball Beach in Georgetown. I get it. The beer is cold. It's fun. I played volleyball. I like volleyball. Um, it's, it's not my goal. I, my friend Aldo, who I met, always told me he sailed to sail. Sailing was the thing that drove him. People and culture and cultural experience was what drove me to sail. Sail for me is a means to an end because I like the cultural aspect of it. I like to get out there. I like to get lost. I like to get places where I don't have the right currency or can't speak the language. I've been that way my whole life. Um, and that's why I loved Haiti. We were going ashore in towns where nobody spoke English. We spoke no French. 
You weren't sure if you were still going to have a boat when you got back out. <laughs> um, and, and it was just, it was exciting and, and different and intriguing. We ended up on the south side of Haiti in an island called Ilabash, which is, if Haiti has a Disney World, it's Ilabash. It's, it's certainly the one spot that gets a lot of east-west traffic. And a lot of boats stop. It's it's bigger, it's safer, and it's absolutely beautiful. But um, Haiti was all that and spectacular, and enjoyed every bit of it. I think we were there, I don't know, a couple of months, and we were intending to sail forward. I wanted to make it across the Mona Passage and get to Puerto Rico and go to Culebra, because Abe Damar's former owner kept telling me that Culebra was his favorite place ever, and um, we were supposed to leave Ilavash on the south shore of Haiti. One morning, and I woke up and listened to Chris Parker's weather on the SSB radio and looked outside, and I just thought, you know, I don't like this. I don't like what we're doing. I'm so sick of beating into the wind because I'm going into the trade winds. Right, you're on, right, the, you know, uh, the thorny the, path, right? I was going to say, you're in the, the deepest of the thorns of the thorny <laughs> path. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's because So is, is Haiti a little further south than most people go when they're heading Um a little. Most people do the north side of Haiti. Okay, so they yeah. sort of skip over the north side of Haiti and maybe go into Luperon in the DR okay. and then go across from there. I like my way because it worked for me. Number one, I was still intending to go east, waiting for weather. Um, the Caribbean Sea is a much calmer place than the Atlantic Ocean. Not that it can't still toss you upside down, um, but it's it's a darn sight more protected than the open Atlantic. So sailing on the south shore gives you a decent number of spots to stop off where you can go over and stage to do the Mona. And I was ready to do that. But I tell you that morning, I just looked at the wind. We were trying to get out and, and I don't remember what the, the name of the, the Cape is in DR. We were literally, we couldn't clear in on the West side of it, but the winds were just atrocious. So we were going to try to get this, the, the nightly do the catabolic winds at night and go East and anchor off this Cabo on the south side of DR and wait and pray that the winds were going to die and go around. I thought this is just the dumbest plan I've ever heard. So I called my friend Aldo on the radio and I said, Aldo, I'm not going. I'm not going east. I don't want to go. I don't like it. You can go without me. That's our deal. You know, we're buddy boats. We're not married. Yeah. <laughs> and and Aldo says, he says, no, if you, if you don't want to go, we don't go. And so he dropped his dinghy in the water and came over and we sat in my boat and looked at the charts. And I just told him, I said, I'm, I'm sick of fighting the wind. There's a reason they call it the thorny path. Doesn't mean that I can't do it, but I don't want to do it. I'm tired. My boat's tired. I'm tired of doing it. So we looked out and we said, well, the wind's going west. What do we hit if we go west? And we said, oh, look, Jamaica. So we made a new plan and left a couple of days later and went west to Jamaica. Um, went to, why can I suddenly not remember the name of the town in Jamaica where I was? Port Antonio, Jamaica which is on the sort of very northeast tip of Jamaica. And we were there for, I don't know, a month and a half. It was glorious. It's the most fun I have ever had in my life underway on a boat. Just the people who were coming through town, the community in town, the music, the gatherings. I, I'm a relatively not antisocial but shy social person. I don't go to beach, what do you call those things? You know, everybody brings a pot of some potluck things and happy hours on the beach. I don't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but Jamaica was just a bunch of wayward souls hanging out, playing music and singing until four o'clock in the morning in the cockpit of somebody's boat. And I had a ball and did it. Cool. 
And uh, that was that loop. And then I decided it was time to come home. My fuel tanks were deteriorating. My autopilot died. I was out of money. Uh, I had a niece who was getting married and I was supposed to officiate the wedding. I couldn't figure out if I managed to sail to Guatemala or Panama, how I was going to afford to haul the boat out and get my butt back home. So uh, I took on a crew member, Larry Weber, who flew down and uh, hopped on my boat. We sailed, I don't know, it's 900 some odd miles from Port Antonio up to a marathon, Florida. I dumped Larry at the airport, stayed drunk a few days in Key West, and then came back up the ICW and put her to bed for a year so I could go make some money. Cool. Cool. Yeah. That's, that sounds like an awesome trip. And, um, and then I, I went back next time with my girlfriend, back down the ditch again, went to the Bahamas and did the Abacos this time, stayed there waiting for people to come visit and got a little stuck. And that's what led to where we started, which is the boat being hauled out in the Abacos as she now sits. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, it's, it's, you know, it's funny. I was, cause I, I follow your stuff on Instagram and, uh, you know, I was when, when I saw that you'd hauled the boat in uh, in the Abacos, I was like, oh, that's a, that's a great idea. I was like, you know, maybe I should look into, uh, you know, getting the boat down there one winter and then I could leave it there. And then you don't have to do the ICW. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess uh, I guess hindsight. Right. Well, you know, and again, not to turn it into a Dorian podcast, but when, when I look, I felt like my decision was so good. And now I've got a mildly bruised broken boat on her side on the ground at AYS in Green Turtle Key. My friends who were tied off in the mangroves lost their boats. Um, my friends in South Florida, when I got back, were, were sending me notes saying, I'll tell you the truth, John, we, we were sitting over here in Florida wishing we were on the hard at Abaco Yacht Services tied down the way your boat is, I think you're in safer condition than we are. You know, it's it's that thing, whether you're talking about leaving your boat for hurricane season or just whether or not you've got the right amount of cloth up or whether or not you're too close to the rocks. You make these damn decisions when you're in charge of the boat and and then you gotta live with it. And the results don't always reflect whether or not it was the right decision. The results all too often just reflect whether or not luck was on your side or not that time. And, yeah. and I think yeah. it's really, really easy to decide that it has something to do with your genius or lack thereof in decision making. It's a darn fine yard. My boat's still there. She should be fixable. And uh, yeah, it's you just at this point, you just deal with it and go forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that's a good segue because I know you reference um, John Vigor's uh, black box theory a fair amount. And, uh, and I'm a big fan. I've always loved his writing. Um, so maybe you could just talk about uh, that, how it kind of a, uh, that kind of thinking affects your approach to sailing. You know, do you have like checklists and everything or do you kind of <sighs> see it more as like a, as, as discipline to do the right thing, you know, when, when it's, when it's irritating or convenient or, uh, or do you, you know, look at yeah. it in a different way? Um, I lived and worked on farms growing up as a young man. And there's this weird thing about farm life. It, it is just freaking relentless. Yeah. yeah. Your farm doesn't care if it's hot or cold or snowing or raining, or if you're tired, there's just no days off. And there's this odd sort of rhythm that you eventually fall into with farm life and you do it maybe not because you think working seven days a week is cool, but you do it 
because you have to and finding a rhythm with it is kind of the only way forward. And I think that to me is somewhat analogous to how I view boat life. I don't mean to sound that it's suffering, um, but certainly there are a whole lot of snapshots in boat life that don't look very glamorous <laughs> and don't look very fun. Um, my girlfriend and I hard aground in Charleston and 30 knot winds, both literally crying in the cockpit just from stress and exhaustion. Yeah, absolutely. Not fun while I'm sitting no. there looking at her going, by the way, we can't sink. We're already on the bottom. We're not going to die. It just sucks. So there's this whole philosophy in my head uh, that ties in both the black box theory and just why we do things in boats. And I always had to explain this to my kids because I'm not a superstitious person. And then they'd come aboard the boat and I was sort of following these what ostensibly appear to be superstitious rules about what we do and don't do. And I, maybe my son especially was really calling me out on it. And, I was, and he's like, so you're superstitious. And I said, I'm not superstitious. <laughs> yeah. These are just the rules, and these are the rules we have to follow, and we follow them even though we don't understand why. And he goes, so you're superstitious. Um, and I finally got that through to him this way. I was reading an article once about this young man who was making, I believe, a Pacific crossing. really doesn't matter. He was single-handed. He was on a boat, him and his dog going across the ocean. Something went wrong and he was taking on water. I sincerely doubt that he hit a shipping container like Robert Redford. Odds are he had a through hole that was screwed up because that's almost always what it is. So his boat's taking on water. He didn't know his boat was taking on water. Here's the funny thing. His bilge pump was failing because it had clogged up with dog hair. When I was on my friend Chip and Tammy's island package, one of my daily chores was to sweep. And my first day on the boat, I said, aren't we on the water? Is there really that much dust out here? I don't understand why I'm sweeping. And they said, you're sweeping because your job is sweeping. And I said, <laughs> okay. And my point in all of this is that some of these might be superstitious and some of them might have reason in logic that we just don't understand yet because we haven't experienced the context that makes it work. That's how I rationalize the things that I do on the boat. And there's there's one more aspect to it, um, which is sort of back to the farm thing. When I go through daily – if I start a major trip, I make an offering to the gods off the back of my boat. I don't do it – like if I'm going down the Intracoastal Waterway, I will do it the first day when I leave. I don't do it every morning when I weigh anchor. But that journey gets an offering – to Poseidon and Neptune at the beginning when I leave. And as I was taught, he gets whatever my best stuff is on the boat because I don't want to piss him off by giving him the cheap rum. That's right. Um, I do that not because I actually think that there's some floating thing called Poseidon that's going to decide based on its mood whether or not I get through to the other side, but as an exercise in reminding myself that there are things I'm supposed to do that men have been doing for, I should say men and women, that humankind has been doing for thousands of years to sail safely through to the other side. Um, and so when I go through these rituals, in my mind, the ones that I think are hogwash, I do full heartedly as a reminder to myself 
that I don't understand at all and that I have to keep paying attention to every rule that all these old sailors taught me, even if I don't know why or don't understand why it exists. And that to me is what the black box theory is. It's about doing things. It's about getting up and feeding the animals and milking the cows on Sunday, even though you don't want to. Um, black box theory to me is getting to your anchorage and looking at your engine anchor, your engine hours and saying, crap, I got to change the oil and doing it anyway, even though all you want to do is have a bite to eat and go to bed, even though it's only 7.30, you're exhausted, doing it anyway. Those things, the metaphor of the invisible black box that these deposits go into paints it out in a way that I think works in our modern brains. However you visualize it, I don't really think matters. I think the idea is you have to have someone's voice in your ear to remind you to do those things. And you better believe I've made mention a number of times post Dorian um, that that black box on my boat is dead empty and overdrawn and I'm got, I got a lot to do to get back and build it back up so that the next time I screw up and go in a cut that I really have no business being in I don't bash into a reef yeah no right on that's uh I I totally agree and and it's funny you say that about some of the old superstitions because when we first launched our boat Firefly we did not bring champagne and the guys at the yard were like, what are you, what are you thinking? Like you need to have champagne. <laughs> so we put right. her in the water and one of the through holes was leaking and I broke a bunch of shit trying to get it closed. So we ended up having to pull her back out after two years on the hard. Uh -huh. And, uh, and I promise you the next time we, we had the champagne <laughs> and, uh, yes, <laughs> and I think I totally agree. I think it's like taking the time to think about maybe these old silly things. Um, at the same time, it, it means that you've, you're taking the time to think about everything, right? That you're, you're trying to be thorough. So I, I, I totally agree. And, I, and, and, it's, and it's fun, too, besides. It is absolutely fun. I, I like everything else. I think we all tweak those lists to work for us. I know a lot of people who are weird about bananas on a boat. Are you kidding me? I sailed to Jamaica. There have been so many bananas on my boat. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe bananas on the boat are why my autopilot died. And I paid the price for it. <laughs> hard to, hard to draw a causal connection there, though, for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm okay with that. I like bananas. I like banana pancakes. So, you know, everyone's got their idea of what they will or won't do. I would tell you to this day, I would not start a major journey on Friday. Yeah. I wouldn't do it. Yeah. That, did, yeah. that is as close as I could come to confessing to getting into superstition. I don't think it matters. I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it's, it's strange how little it takes. This is something my girlfriend learned on that day that we ran hard aground in Charleston twice, might I add not once, but twice. Um, it takes so little out there to go from we isn't this fun to holy crap. This is the worst thing ever. How do we make it end? And it comes in a flash. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, res respecting that and trying, trying to make sure that I've done everything I can to avoid ending up in that, you know, that's, that's that age old, I'd rather, I'd rather be in here wishing I was out there than out there wishing I was back in here <laughs> at the dock. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, it just, it doesn't take much and, and I'll go through pretty much anything that doesn't make me look too irrational to make sure that it's going the right way. Cool. And I really love tossing a shot off the back of the boat to the gods when I start a trip. And I do it. Avi Damar has these three awesome old pewter 
little wine glasses that hang upside down in her galley that I don't know how long they've been on the boat, but they've been on the boat for many, many years. I've got video of Ave crossing the Southern Ocean in 1998, going from New Zealand to Chile, and they're hanging upside down in the galley then. Wow, that's epic. Uh, yeah, that's really cool. It's one of the few times that I take those puppies out and pour a splash of something good in there. And I've got my own little lines that I say at, at the back of the boat to pay homage before we leave. But it always makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing. Cool. No, that's, that's good yeah. stuff. So, and kind of in the same vein, uh, you know, in, in the first episode of this, your more, more recent uh, podcast, you're, you talk about heading down the ICW and you're, you're scudding along across the, uh, the Pungo River and across Pamlico. Hey. You say that on that, on your first trip south, you know, and it, with a small craft advisory, you would have, you would have hunkered down and uh, which, which is an impulse I, I certainly identify with. Um, <laughs> yeah, I support it. Yeah. But, uh, but maybe you can just talk about how kind of the, you know, your experiences have, have, uh, kind of evolved your approach and, and what, sure. uh, what you've learned, what you learned from your first trip versus your second trip. Absolutely. Um, number one, I learned from my first trip to not try to make the boat or the day give you something that it doesn't want to give you because it's not going to happen. It's like herding cats. If your boat and they're all so different, we are all as as the captain's different, our skill sets are different, our boats are different, their sails are different, their hull designs are different, what they do is different. If on any given day your boat's not going to give you what you want from it, stop beating it to try to make it run faster or do whatever it is you want it to do. Take what it'll give you, and if you can't amend your day to take what it'll give you, stop and wait until a different day and try again. Um, it's context. That experience is just simply context. Sailing south on the Chesapeake Bay the first time I hit a small craft advisory. I don't remember what was blowing through. It was late December. I got a late start because my transmission had failed the first time, so I had to rebuild it. Um, and I was going south, and they were there was a small craft advisory that was starting that afternoon. They were talking about uh, something like 8 to 10 inside the bay. I don't remember what it was. It was it was gloomy. It was blowing. I couldn't see a thing. I was in pea soup kind of fog. And I thought, you know, this is a really horrible idea. I'm not sailing. I'm driving. I can't see where I'm going. Um, and I don't have any experience. This makes me an idiot. So I crept up the Piankatank River. Oh, yeah. A name I still love to say. That's uh, we actually keep our boat on the Piankatank now. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so I, I know it well. <laughs> I crept way up the Pianca tank. I don't remember the name of the bit. If you go way the heck up there. Did you go up to the bridge or? Uh, I don't remember, quite frankly, Fair whether enough. I went yeah. too past. Is this a bridge I could have gone under or yes, not? Yes, it is a bridge you could have gone under. I probably did. Went up to this big curve that kind of goes around a corner to the left if you're coming yep, up. Yep, okay. Actually, I think that's before the bridge, but I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. Yeah, and uh, there's all these houses on on really quite a bluff yep. over on your right-hand side. Quite, And I thought, I was in like 15 feet of water. I was the only boat there. There was high land all the way around me, and the Chesapeake Bay was blowing to death, and I was just, you know, sitting in there, sipping tea out of teacups. So... I still support and completely and for that kind of hiding. The difference between that and this time when uh, my girlfriend Kobe and I raced across whichever river it was, um, making ungodly speed also in a small craft advisory, was being able to look out, know what it feels like in the boat to be in too much wind, 
to have because of experience an idea of what the water action is going to do to your boat and your steerability and all those things when you're underway. And of course, the willingness to turn around and bail. And I'm always quick to do that if I need to. And uh, we set out that day, even though, like I said, they were screaming SCAs on the radio and took off south. I think think we left the main down and just let the Jenny fly. And she just heeled over and took off. I don't know if I've ever achieved true water speeds like the ones we were seeing that day. She just had a rail in the water and was flying along. And it was all glorious because because I'd had some miles and years under my belt and I knew what it meant. Uh, and that circles all the way back to the very beginning when I said, I know I've only had so much experience. My daddy always used to tell me when we'd go skiing every winter that the only people who never fall on the ski slopes were the people who are never trying to get better. So I'm okay with falling, but there's a big difference between falling and falling down a cliff. Yeah. So I try to make sure that that I push myself a little and that I try to make my skills better, which you can't do tied to the dock. You've got to get out there and sail and you've got to get there out there and sail in wind. Um, but that's the difference is looking at it at the first time and going, I don't know what to do out there. I'm going to stop. And the second time going, oh, I've been through this. I think this feels like this still being humble enough to say, if I'm wrong, let's turn around and duck back into our anchorage and taking off and enjoying it. And it's just that context of, of experience and, and humility. I think if you can't be humble when you're steering a boat, man, you are your own worst enemy. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I don't know if you're trying to give, give advice, but that sounds like really good advice to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's what worked for me. Yeah, it, right this on. is the worst ever. And in sail, cause I started out knowing nothing. I have all these blue water ocean crossing friends. Every one of them was telling me what I should do. I respected all of their opinions and none of them ever agreed on anything. <laughs> and it drove me insane in the beginning. I got this telling me I had too many sales and this one telling me that. And it was insanity. And the only choice you have, it's like if you're a young man and getting married and, and every uncle you forgot you ever had is shown up drunk to give you advice the only thing you can do is listen and you know they know more than you, but all their advice conflicts all the other advice you're getting. And all you can do is kind of grit your teeth and get through it. You know, hope you don't die or ruin the boat in the process and come out the other side. And then you can say, I've got the experience now. I don't need to ask that question anymore. I don't think the questions ever end, but the list grows shorter. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good. Good stuff. I have so many opinions. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, it sounds sounds good to me, man. <laughs> um, and so talking about that a little bit, I'm always interested to hear about people's uh, kind of first experiences skippering their their own boat in the ocean. Uh, so what was that? What was that like for you? I, I don't know if that was a trip down. I guess probably was it to Haiti? Was that the first big overnight passage you had, or what? Yeah, whatever. I'd however say, you you know think about that. Um, I would say my first decent chunk. There were a couple of decently substantial hops in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Long Island down to Crooked is a, a pretty decent, I mean, not days, but, uh, you know, all open ocean sailing in, in a pretty decent hop. Um, the first super big chunk, without a doubt, was was from Great Inagua down into Haiti. Um, each one different than the one before. My first 
I think there were a few firsts that happened out there. Um, the first first, which was not a sale because I basically motored my way from Miami over onto the uh, Bahama Banks, my first crossing. Um, but I'd wondered, really wondered, it wasn't scared at all, but I wondered what it was going to feel like to be out there once you hit the stream and you're in or past the stream and the water is indigo and you can't see the Bahamas yet, but you can't see Florida anymore and the depth sounders stop working because you're in 10,000 feet of water or whatever it may be there. I was really wondering if that was going to unnerve me at all. Um, and I was completely prepared to admit that it had, but I got out there and found it to be the most serene and beautiful thing I had ever, ever experienced. I love not seeing land when I'm out there. Um, they got mostly better from there, but you know, it comes back to winds and waves and sailing and all that. Um, the Bahamas to Haiti stretch was one of the best. Um, we left out, don't remember the name of the anchorage on, on Great Inagua, but we left out of the north side of that island. And I was kind of beaten. I, well, we weren't beating into the wind, but I was on a tailwind. I had to pull out the Genoa and I was going downwind. My boat, I don't know if she sails the best. Well, in soft downwind winds, she doesn't do well at all. I guess in a stiff breeze, anything that'll move those six and a half tons is pretty good. But it was a struggle and it wasn't comfortable. Wave action was bad. And then we kind of got to the corner of the island and got to round south. I always said this was the moment when I understood why people surf. I don't surf. I don't know if you surf. I try to. <laughs> Surfing to me from land looks like a bunch of people paddling around while sitting on surfboards and occasionally standing up and going nowhere and <laughs> waiting for something that seems never to come. I know that sounds horrible. I have so many friends who surf. I lived on the Outer Banks for a decade, but I didn't surf. I didn't understand surfing until I rounded <laughs> into the Windward Passage and pointed my boat south and was on a port tack, and she heeled over at this beautiful angle, and I threw in the tiller pilot, and the boat just kind of pointed south and took off like a thoroughbred. I think the winds were maybe like sustained 20, 22, which is happy land in Ave Del Mar land. You give me like 19 to 23 on the beam and that girl will sail forever um and when she leaned over and just went straight as an arrow and was balanced and i wasn't fighting the boat and we were clipping along and seeing all these awesome water speeds i thought aha this is the moment in sailing <laughs> i've been on the boat how long and this is the first time i've achieved this this is the equivalent of those guys sitting on those surfboards paddling around um, that was absolutely glorious. And, and I flew down there. I spent a lot of days sailing sort of side by side with my friend Aldo in the Contest 30. And he would always get wherever we were going hours ahead of me because these little nine knot winds would puff up and his boat would take off. And Ave would sort of sit there with their arms crossed, glaring, going, I'm not going to go. That's not <laughs> enough wind. I don't like it. And so I was just frustrated as hell. And that was also the day that I kind of realized, okay, you know, those were his days. This is my day. This is an Ave Del Mar day. I got some seas. The rolling felt great. The wind felt great. The heel felt great. And she just flew. Um, so I love open ocean sailing. I've had overnight sails where 
uh, one lone bird will kind of will, will come or came I should say uh, landed on a solar panel and kept me company all night long through the dark of the night I've got this thing where I'll sleep in the cockpit depends on where I am um, and set alarms for different intervals to wake up and do a quick scan both of AIS on the radio and of the horizon for lights which could be anything from literally nine to 12 minutes if I'm in a traffic zone, but I'm going all night and have to sleep to, you know, maybe a half hour out in, out in a big ocean where there doesn't appear to be anything. Um, but that bird just stayed with me all night long. Every once in a while, he'd fly off for about 15 minutes, come back, land on it again. You give him a name, you know, look, <laughs> look for something to feed him. There's such a piece in that, in, in seeing the stars come literally all the way down to the horizon uh, you know, even though the atmosphere may get thicker, there's no light pollution, there's no air pollution to speak of, no smog to slow it down. And those, I found that to be very, very peaceful. But I also had absolutely miserable sails. Hey, to Jamaica, it was the perhaps most miserable 51 hours of my life. Absolutely everything went wrong. I got no sleep. I was hallucinating. Um, you know, it was as miserable as it could be, but that was because things were going wrong, not because I was in the open ocean. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's inspiring to hear, hear, hear people talk like that. It's great. I have a lot of people who ask me about open ocean sailing, not from a sailing standpoint. And it always comes from people who want to know if they can find themselves. I'm using those words. That's not their words. Out in the middle of the ocean. Um, and my response is always that it's, it's like being alone anywhere, whether you're in the woods or on a mountaintop, uh, or on a beach or in the ocean. I don't know that it really matters when you're just left with yourself and your own thoughts, you're going to behave however you behave. I don't think there's any you out on the ocean to find that notwithstanding, I find it when, <laughs> when I'm allowed to get sleep to be a, a very beautiful and, and peaceful place to be. Cool. So, speaking of, of of your thoughts here, you uh you you started out doing a podcast with uh with Boat Radio, and uh, and you've since host, hoisted your own flag. So, tell us about uh tell us about the podcast. Well, here's I'm gonna throw you a curveball that you're not ready for. Okay. So, we'll back up first. Yeah, I started. I was interviewed by Mike McDowell, who then owned and operated something called Boat Radio. All those shows are still available by the way not just mine his everything that he did through boat radio on audio boom if you search for boat radio they're all there carolyn sherlock had a show mike mcdowell had a show um all kinds of people did so he interviewed me for a show he was doing that was called the life aquatic um and he was just interviewing all sorts of schlubs like me who do what we do and i got interviewed I thought it went horribly, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> uh, when we were done, we hung up on Skype, and I think I called one of my kids. I'm like, ah, that was a disaster. Um, and, but then Boat Radio launched, and eventually my show made it on, and, and it did quite well. All my friends really liked it, and Mike really liked it. ended up offering me a show on Boat Radio. So I did a show called Postcards from Sea um, under Boat Radio until Boat Radio ended. Uh, a year or a year and a half or so later, whenever that might have been. I loved doing that show. I did. I then broke out just out of a desire to sort of keep it alive because I just love telling stories. I, I, I hung on to postcards from C with no resistance from Mike at all and put out a few new shows. Um, 
what it really showed best was how completely unregimented I am at both recording and certainly at editing to get my stuff out there. And I was eager to change the show a little when I was no longer under boat radio, not because I thought it needed to be better, but I wasn't part of a John and Mike storytelling team anymore. I was just me and the show, I think kind of reflected that it shifted and I think the energy went up a little and it became a little less grounded, which probably reflects me pretty damned well. Um, <laughs> but I've been kind of just doing that as a hobby. Well, I have a new podcast that Mike McDowell again and I are working on. He is in the process of launching a new podcast platform, which is called Cuento, C-U-E-N-T-O. And if you go to cuento.co, C-O, um, you'll find his site, Cuento, in Spanish means story. Uh, and it's just a collection of different podcasts that he's putting together. Um, he's not hosting all of them. I think he does host one. Um, and I have a podcast that will be a part of that platform. It'll be called Seabird um, and more Spanish. So for anyone who doesn't know, Ave Del Mar, the name of my boat in Spanish means bird of the sea or seabird so i'll be doing a show called seabird um in uh in seasons i don't remember i think it's something in the neighborhood of like 11 or 13 hour long shows in a season uh that will all be with mike on the cuento network and i'm looking for that to start hopefully as early as january or february of this coming year but if you already if you go to cuento.co it's there. You can see there's a trailer. If you click on Seabird, there's a trailer down at the bottom that I'm really proud of and I think kind of shows why he's a good person for me to work with when it comes to telling stories. And all the postcards from C stuff is still there, too. You can also go to postcardsfromc.com. Uh, I think the most recent episode might not propagate correctly, but they're all either there or on Anchor FM. It's pretty easily searchable. Cool. That's uh, that's really exciting. I'm I'm psyched. I I listened to Boat Radio from the beginning, so uh, so cool. Yeah, I'm 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 excited to uh, to hear what uh, what you guys have in store. Yeah, I, I'm super excited too. I'm I have no idea how old you are. I'm gonna guess I'm a little older than you are. I'm turning fifty five soon. Um, although I might not have grown up in the same like radio story heyday that my parents did. I certainly grew up in the 60s and 70s in an era when telling stories on the radio was a big, big thing. And and the people who did it and did it well, I admired deeply. They really left a mark for me. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that I love doing this. Mike McDowell is an old BBC guy, British, worked for BBC. He was an actual DJ. He's done so many things. He worked with CNN. Um, he's got the know-how and the appreciation also of that era of storytelling that really works for me. Uh, and he seems to be a, a pretty good horse trainer, I guess, if I'm the horse <laughs> to kind of, kind of keep me racing in the right direction. He's like, don't worry about it. You just run, point yourself this way, do what you do. I'll, you know, I'll clean it up. And he's a, a great, great person for that. And he's just got the, the keenest ear for stories and and I really like it and I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it launching and uh Seabird is happening with me and Mike McDowell absolutely regardless. Um 
it's it's going to launch with or without Quinto, but Quinto is where you can find it. And like I said, there's there's a trailer down there that I think is a lot of fun to listen to. Cool, cool. I will appoint people to that uh, in the uh, the website and oh, all that good you. stuff. And uh, yeah, and actually, there's a um, when I was a kid, my dad used to read this book to me. I actually don't remember the name of the author, but the book is called Seabird, and it's about a uh, a young boy who's uh, ships out on a whaler and he and he carves this seabird out of uh, ivory or whalebone and he and he passes right. it down through his family and it's, it's one of my favorite books and uh i my daughter's a little young for me to read to it to her but it's definitely <laughs> on the list so seabird oh, sounds good I, I will also look up that book yeah it's a it's a good it's a it's a good like you know eight nine years old it's it's a good one that's i uh, i spend a lot of time with my kids talking about books we read and, yeah, and what yeah. an impact and why so uh, you know, sounds like a, the book dove for nine year olds and that's, that's an okay right. thing, <laughs> probably a good story. So yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm excited to do that and I'm excited for the storytelling and people like you who do what you do It's it's, it's a part of keeping that, that essence alive of telling stories. Cool. Well, thanks so much, John. I, I really appreciate you, uh, you sharing your time and I certainly wish you the best of luck getting, uh, getting Ave back sailing and, Thank um, you so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll certainly be following along. And uh, I guess, so uh, remind us one more time, what, where can people find you online? You can find me online at avedelmar, A-V-E-D-E-L-M-A-R.com or postcardsfromsea.com. Um, my boat adventures are on Facebook, facebook.com slash sailing.ave, A-V-E. And we're the same thing on Instagram, sailing.ave. I am not the best at social media. Um, I don't approach it from the standpoint of attempting to impress anyone by getting numbers. Um, so I, when, when I'm doing things that I think tell a good story, I put it up and when I'm not, I don't, but I'm there. I love connecting with people. One of the, one of the best things that happens to me going up and down the intracoastal waterway is putting pictures up and people going, Oh my God, you're here where are you? Let's go out. Let's have a beer. Yeah. And yeah. That's I've awesome. just met so many awesome people all over doing that. I, you know, from, from the Chesapeake Bay all the way down to the Bahamas, that's the serendipity and it's the stories and the people, you know, stories are just all about people, right? Our foibles and fables and going out and good times and bad times and all of that. So it's, it's a great thing. I'm glad you're doing it. Cool. It's a good place to wrap it up here, John. So thanks. Thanks so much. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for having me. It was great talking to you. And if uh, if I get your way, I'll give you a shout. Please, yeah. No, that'd, that'd be a good time. Beer will be on me. Ah, uh, well, we, we'll have to fight over that. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. <laughs> thanks, John. Right, sailors, there you have it. John Herlig of the sailing vessel Ave Del Mar, the podcast Postcards from Sea, and the upcoming podcast Seabird on Quento.com. He can be found online at AveDelmar.com, on Instagram at Sailing.Ave, and on Facebook as well. And uh, thanks to John for taking the time to talk with me. I had a lot of fun hearing his thoughts, uh, and I was fortunate enough to say hey to him up in Annapolis during the boat show. Um, so that was, uh, that was pretty cool. Uh, and in going through and, and editing this episode, a couple of things uh, that John said really jumped out at me. Uh, the first was how he spoke about farm life as a metaphor for seamanship. 
how the unrelenting nature, the kind of the twenty four seven commitment of caring for living things, is analogous analogous to caring for and conning a small cruising sailboat. Uh, and that really resonated with me. Uh, long-term listeners may recall that I spend much of my time spawning oysters and caring for billions of tiny shellfish larvae. Uh, so John's analogy between the discipline of agriculture or, or aquaculture and, and seamanship really made a lot of sense to me. Uh, and I, uh, I like the way of th- that way of thinking about it. Um, the second thing that he said that jumped out at me was about accepting the limits of your boat and of yourself. Uh, and he spoke about how he would push his boundaries and, and challenge himself, but do so incrementally so as to avoid uh, truly screwing up. Uh, and he may not have meant that as advice, but it certainly seemed uh, wise to me. So uh, I really identified with a lot of the stuff that John was saying, uh, and it's cool and inspiring to, uh, to see the sailing that he's done aboard a relatively modest boat. So thanks again to John, and uh, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. As always, if you have, do me a favor, leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks, and until next time. That's it for this episode of The Bonnie Boat. Thanks for listening. I know time is my most scarce resource these days, so I appreciate you uh, choosing to spend your time listening here. One of the reasons I decided to throw my hat into the podcast ring is to get in touch with other like-minded sailing maniacs. To that end, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email me at thebonnieboat at gmail.com. You can find us online at thebonnieboat.wordpress.com. And remember, to be a sailor, you don't need a YouTube channel with 100,000 video subscribers. You don't need an Instagram account with pictures of beautiful people in their bathing suits. You certainly don't need a podcast. You don't even need a boat. You just need to go sailing. Until next time, this is Firefly standing by on Channel 16.